Everybody's into mission right now. It's, 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 the, new, it's the new buzzword. Beyond, beyond the, the, the typical historical use of the terms missionary and missions work, everybody's right now, they're all about being on mission. We want missional churches. We want to be missional in our communities. We want to be living missionally on mission. Even I went on Amazon yesterday. Just mission or missional. The mission of God, Christopher Wright. Transforming mission. Planting missional churches. The the ministry of the missional church. Missional renaissance. And that kind of describes that kind of describes the air that we're breathing right now. Everybody's wanting to be on the mission. And with all the fervor for mission, we at some point need to ask the question, okay, what is the mission? I mean, it's cool. It's cool to say, hey, I want to be on mission. I want to be part of the plan. But at some point you've got to ask, what's the plan? Where's this, where's this thing headed? A mission for their church? They have a plan for their life? They have a retirement mission? They have a lifestyle mission, they have an educational mission, they have a a social mission, all of which may be good and healthy desires in their proper place. But a problem can reside in a, a certain type of mentality in which our little stories are being thought of as the big story. Like, I've got some idea of what I want to do in my life, and and God, would you serve that mission? When in reality, God is not really preoccupied with ensuring that we accomplish the various goals we've devised for our lives, because God already has a mission that He's committed to. God has a mission. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? Because God has a mission. He's going to do something. The sovereign, the sovereign king speaks. Let there be... And it happens. It's, it's moving somewhere. For six days He forms and orders the earth. He brings creatures into existence and He assigns the dominion roles for things like the sun and the moon and birds and mankind. And as you read the book of Genesis, it's evident that this thing is is going somewhere. It's the first chapter in a story. A story that spans from Genesis all the way to Revelation. God is doing something. The creation is going somewhere. History will have a culmination. Life has meaning because God has a mission. God's mission drives creation. It drives history. It drives the church. It drives the Bible. This is a, this is a mission book. God's going somewhere. And some people live their lives expecting God to join them in their mission. And the question we ought to be asking rather than, here's what I'm doing, bless it, is, hey, what are you doing and how, when, how can I get on board? That's what we're talking about this morning. What's God up to in the world? I mean, this is an, actually, this is quite ambitious. What's the meaning of life is where we're headed. And, and what's the Bible about? So, 
let's go. I have too many pages. But I'm going to try to identify the mission for us. Talk about God's mission. And I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm going to try to just kind of lay it out in three steps here. Um, and if we could cue the, the video here in, in a second. What's God's mission? Step one. Ultimately, you've heard me say this before. Ultimately, God's mission is to build a kingdom of revelation and celebration. Revelation and celebration. What's the mission of God? The, 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 the tradition that we tend to fall in, the Reformed tradition says, with the resounding, it gives this resounding affirmation that all things exist for the glory of God. And to this I give a, a hearty amen. For all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. To Him be the glory forever. Romans 11.36 The Scriptures are replete with this theme of all things exist for the glory of God. This is identified as the motive behind everything from the initial creation to the existence of Israel to the judgment of sinners to the redemption of humanity. For example, Pharaoh is hardened and judged for God's glory. Exodus 9.16 For this purpose I have raised you up to show, my, to show you my power so that... Okay, here's the reason. Why does God raise up Pharaoh, this hard-hearted, rebellious man? I raised you up for this purpose so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Or... God gives mercy for the sake of His glory. Isaiah 48, 9-11 For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not, be cut, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name pro be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. For His glory. That's why you get mercy. For His glory. Or you're created for His glory. Isaiah 43. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. That's why you're made for the glory of God. So I agree with people like Jonathan Edwards, for example, who says that the, the chief end for which God created the world was so that, number one, He might display the beauty of His excellencies, and number two, so that His people might enjoy Him. Revelation and celebration. The purpose of creation is to worship the excellencies of God as He reveals Himself. That's what He's up to. He's going to put Himself on display. And He is going to call people to worship that display. Because He's awesome. That's what He's up to. In the broadest sense. And so, here's what I'm going to say. Let's see if we got this. There it is. God is on a mission to create glad-hearted worshipers of His beauty. The meaning of life. Okay, but we need some nuance. We're going to say more than He is just devoted to the pursuit 
of creating worshipers of His glory. Because in God's revelation of Himself, in which He is going to powerfully evoke delight in the hearts of His people so that they erupt into an eternal worship of Him in that display, that demonstration, He's going to make a statement about Himself. And the clearest way that He reveals Himself, the clearest demonstration of Himself, the clearest word that He has to speak concerning Himself is Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God about God. He is the revelation of the Father. Jesus is, Hebrews 1.3, the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of His nature. So when Jesus is seen, the Father is seen. That's exactly what Jesus says about Himself. John 12.45 Whoever sees Me, sees Him who sent Me. Whoever has seen Me, has seen the Father. So God has concentrated His mission to display His glory in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the Gospel suggests that the climax of Jesus' life is the cross of Calvary. So the the, the mission to reveal zeroed in on Jesus, and Jesus says the apex of my revelation is Calvary. So for example, John 13.31, when Judas had gone out, so here comes the betrayal, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. Watch the revelation of the glory of God as the Son of God is hung on the cross for sinners. When you see that, it should blow you away. Let me just, let's, let's, uh, let's see, did we go the wrong way here? Uh Uh-oh, I'm stuck. There it is. Okay, so let's, let's refine the mission a little bit just to get it clarified. God is on a mission to create glad-hearted worshipers of His beauty, revelation, celebration, as He is revealed in the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So when you see Christ crucified for sinners, so that by faith alone they can enjoy the eternal delights of knowing and loving God, when you see that grace for what it is, when you perceive the mercy of God at Calvary, when you see the love of God being poured out for sinners, guess what you're seeing? This is a revelation of God. He's on display. That's what Calvary is about. Behold the majesty and the mercy of God in the Son of God on the cross. Step, that's, uh, that's step two. I don't know what's going on with that. Okay. Step number three is that Christ is the central figure of a story. He doesn't just he doesn't he doesn't just show up and and say hey here, here's the revelation. He shows up in the middle of a story that's as thick as the Old Testament, a historical drama that's being played out through the history of mankind, and specifically it's the story of a kingdom. Jesus is the is the chief character in the story of a kingdom. 
The story of God's kingdom is the context in which God's mission is accomplished. The kingdom is the setting for the Jesus-focused, cross-focused revelation of the glory of God. So let's refine our statement. I won't do this anymore. Here's the last one. Whoa. Okay. Will, could you could you just put me on um like the third statement? There it is. God is on a mission to create glad-hearted worshipers of His beauty as He is revealed in the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ who establishes the kingdom of God. I'm going to say that's God's mission. That's what God's up to in the world. It's in the story of this kingdom that Christ puts God on display. It's in the story of this kingdom that sinners become worshipers. It's in the story of this kingdom that the mission is accomplished. Which means that if you want to be a part of the mission, if you want to get on mission, you need to know two things. You need to know what this story of the kingdom is all about and you need to know where we are in the story. Does that make sense? You've got to know what the story is about. If you want to be on the mission. And you've got to know where we are. So what's the main storyline? The, the, the main storyline is the story of a kingdom. And let me just, let me just kind of show you, um, maybe just, uh, you, you really have to make a case for this, but I'm just going to kind of give you one little snapshot of like, oh yeah, that's a big, yeah, it's clearly a kingdom story. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, so John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God. Um, He's declaring good news. And what does He declare? What is this Gospel? Saying, the time is fulfilled. Hey, this they've been waiting for something that has now come to fulfillment. The time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the Gospel. It's good news that the Kingdom is at hand. The time is fulfilled. It's good news to them for some reason. Because if you had been a Jew living in the first century, you would know the story of the Kingdom. We've talked about this before. You open up Genesis or first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, the, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Well, if you don't know what Christ, David, and Abraham means, you're out of the loop. We're, we're mid-story. So here it is, a story of the kingdom. And I want to suggest to you this morning, there are four elements to the kingdom of God. There are four elements to the kingdom of God, and we're going to go through the Bible, and we're going to look at this. God's kingdom is, I think if you just boil it down, four things. One, it's God's rule over God's people in God's place where they are enjoying His presence. Rule, people, place, presence. So let's go to Eden. The kingdom of God. We have God's rule... Evident in Eden. 
where God is king, which is evident by the fact that he's making royal decrees. Let there be, and the creation obeys. This is a royal decree. It's an edict. It's an order. He's, he's, he's making pronouncements and the world is coming under His rule. Not only that, He's resting on a throne. Right? So seventh day, God rests. It doesn't mean that God is relaxing. When God takes His rest, in the ancient Near, Eastern, Near, Near, ancient Near Eastern creation stories, we get some context for how people thought of this idea of a God resting. So you can go back to Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation story. And you see that when the creation is finished, when a temple is built for a God, but when it's finished, a temple is built. And when the temple is built, the God takes his rest on the throne of the temple. It's a, it's a kingly rest. It's, it's, it's standing at the control center of the creation. At the temple. This is where God reigns over His now ordered creation that was initially formless and void. He puts it into order. You do this. You rule the seasons. You rule the air. You rule the animals. Okay. And then He sits on the throne. So, Let's just listen to this. This is, this is Marduk. This is in the Enuma Elish. Here's Marduk. After the creation, in the, that creation story is finished, here's what he says. Below the firmament, so here's the heavens, below the firmament, whose grounding I have made firm, a house I shall build, a temple. Let it be the abode of my pleasure. With, within it, I shall establish its holy place. I shall appoint my holy chambers. I shall establish my kingship. So Marduk takes the throne once the temple is built. And then the gods rest there. Your chamber shall be our stopping place, they say. We shall find rest therein. Now, this is just the mentality of the ancient Near Eastern world. This is how they thought of temples. This is how they thought of creation. It's just the way that they thought. And Moses comes into the scene and he says, I have a story to tell about the king of creation. The true king. I have a story to tell about his temple. It's all his temple. And when he was finished, he sat down on the throne as king. The king is making royal decrees. The king is sitting on his throne. The king is establishing law. Genesis 2.17 The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Or Genesis 1.28 Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth like serpents. There is rule in the garden because God is king. But there's not only rule, there are God's people. Adam and Eve created in God's image. They're made for Him. They're made to reflect His glory. They're made to demonstrate who He is. They're to live under God's rule, trust in in dependence on Him, walk in obedience to Him, and follow His decrees. Follow His rules. Don't eat. Have dominion. 
They are in God's place. So not only are they in this cosmic creation that God has made, but then God makes a garden. And the garden actually functions like a microcosmic temple. So the creation is a temple, and the garden is a little picture of that. God's going to dwell in that place with them. This little garden temple. One, one of the reasons we know that this is, there's several reasons why we know this is a, is a temple, and we could go into all the uh, imagery of the, the rivers flowing out from the temple, which you see also in Revelation in the final scene. Uh, you've got, you know, the rivers are filled with gold. You've got all this temple imagery going on. And, and Adam has an assignment in this garden. His assignment is to work and keep the garden. You need to work it and keep it. Well, Moses, who wrote this, talks about one other person who works and keeps something in the book of Numbers. Numbers 3.8. Speaking of the priests who are in the temple, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister or as they work at the temple. So this keeping guard and ministering are the exact same Hebrew words that are used for Adam's job in the garden. The priest is to work, is to guard and work in the temple, and Adam is to guard and work in the garden. Because the garden is a temple. This is God's place. God is ruling over His people in His place, and in that place, they're enjoying His presence. The, the, this is a little picture of the kingdom of God. Eden is our first glimpse of, of, of the kingdom of God, the mission to have this kingdom in which God's people are enjoying God's presence. And then they lose it all. They won't come under His rule. Because they won't come under His rule... They're exiled. Rather than obediently exercising dominion, the serpent exercises dominion over them. And rather than keeping and guarding the temple, they let an intruder in. And rather than refraining from eating, they eat. They won't come under His rule, so God removes them from the place. And He removes them from the presence. This is judgment. This is wrath. They're exiled. They're racing towards death. They lose rule. They lose people. They lose place. They lose presence. And they lose the kingdom. And you might think that the mission would be aborted if God hadn't promised that He's going to fix it. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God is going to bring up an offspring from Eve who's going to undo the curse. Noah's father thinks it's him. That's why he names him Noah. The Hebrew word for rest is Noah. Noah's dad thinks that Noah's going to fix the problem. And in some sense, he does. You kind of have a new creation scene after the flood. But it's just a little picture of, of a greater Redeemer 
who's going to come. There's a greater Redeemer, some, some child of Eve, who's going to, at the cost of his own life, this bruised heel, he's going to fix the kingdom that has been lost here. He's going to establish this kingdom, but when he does it, he's going to do it as a rescuer. It's a rescue, from here on out, it's a rescue mission in the establishment of the kingdom. Okay, so that's the first glimpse of the kingdom that we get. The second glimpse of the kingdom that we get is the nation of Israel. It's the second clear picture of the kingdom of God. So it's in Eden, it's lost, and then there's promises that it's going to return. Promises to Eve, promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They go into, they go into uh, Egypt. And God saves them and establishes a kingdom. God's rule. It's not merely rule in Israel. It's redemptive rule. He he rules as Savior of Israel now. The nature of God's kingdom in Eden was that He rules. The nature of God's kingdom from there on out is that He rules as Savior. So, in the Ten Commandments, when God's laying down His law for His people to come under His rule, first thing He says, before He gives any commandments, He identifies Himself. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's a Savior King. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved idol or carved image, and on he goes. So you've got God's rule in Israel. You've got God's people in Israel. I will take you to be my people. And now it's not just a people in the garden who are merely his subjects. They are now redeemed subjects. They're saved people. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. A a redeemed people living under a ruler who has redeemed them. Jeremiah 11.4 I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the fiery furnace saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So when he comes to give his rule, when he comes to establish that kingship, he's a savior king. And they are in God's place. It's God's rule over God's people in God's place. And the Bible clearly identifies this as the land of Israel. This is where God was. It's where he chose to make his name dwell. Deuteronomy 12.5 Israel belonged to God. And so the entirety of their society, their, their, their government, their law, their military, their national holidays. It's all under theocratic reign. God is king of Israel. That's my army. That's my land. You can't plant anything on, a, on, on the seventh year. You can't put those two kinds of cloths together. Don't boil that goat in its mother's milk. He's, I mean, he's got rules of how he wants his kingdom to be run in that place. And there was a temple in that place. 
That's why he, that's why he lays, lays claim on it. This is my land because I live here. And because there's a temple, that means there is presence. So you, you, you got this scene in 1 Kings where Solomon finishes building the temple. And then the priests take the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And what happens? This cloud of glory falls on the temple and the priest can't even stand to minister. Can't even stand up to minister. Because the presence of God is in that place. These are God's people enjoying the presence of their God who is in their midst. You shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of which I dwell. For I, Yahweh, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Numbers 35 34. You have God's redemptive rule over God's redeemed people in God's holy place, enjoying God's presence. This is a picture of the kingdom of God. And they lose it all. Just like Adam. I mean, the the story of Israel is the story of Adam recapitulated at the national level. They won't Come under His rule. Jeremiah 16.18 I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted My land. It's My land. They have polluted My land with the carcasses of their detestable idols. Commandments number one and number two. They will not come under His rule. And because they won't come under His rule, God rejects them as His people. They lose rule. They lose that people identity, Hosea 1.4, I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Hosea 1.6, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. Hosea 1.9, and this is the most devastating blow of all, you are not my people, and I am not your God. It, it's the epitome of the loss of the kingdom. Because they won't come under His rule, He not only rejects them as His people, but He removes His presence from their midst. So Ezekiel chapter 10, I'm not going to quote it because it's pretty much the whole chapter. It's this awful scene of this glory that landed on the temple when the temple was built. The glory leaves the temple. This terrible scene. God is leaving Israel. And guess what happens? They just get pounced by the nations. And they are driven into exile. They leave the land. They're they're literally driven out of Israel. Daniel prays in exile, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. They lose the rule of God. They lose their identity as the people of God. They lose the place, the land, and they lose the presence of God. They're driven into exile. It's judgment. It's wrath. It's, it's east of Eden. That's humanity's state. East of Eden. Outside the presence of God. Under judgment. 
And you might just think, well, end of the story. Just like in Genesis. But if you've been re- if you read Genesis, you know, hey, there was promise of restoration. And there's promise of restoration for Israel as well. God will restore his people. Hosea 1.10. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. It shall be said to them, children of the living God. And God is going to use a savior king to make it happen. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. If someone's going to come from the line of David. What's he going to do with these exiled people? He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell securely. Hey, the land is secured. This is the name by which it will, it will be called. Here's the, here's the name that the new Jerusalem will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Not not we provide our own righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. This Davidic king is going to come and he's going to provide righteousness for a people who failed to perform righteousness so they were cast out of the presence of God. Davidic king comes to rule as a savior and provide righteousness for a people who had no righteousness and had no hope. They'd lost everything. We sing this hymn at Christmas time, right? Come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile here. God, will you please save us from our exile, from your presence, because of our sin? Will you please save us? Rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And he did. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Kingdom is here. All these You see, Eden wasn't the real thing. And Israel wasn't the real thing. The time is fulfilled when Jesus arrives. Now there's a gap between when Jesus arrives and the end. And I'm just going to jump to the end so we can finish the story and then I'll come back and say, where are we now? So what's the end picture of this story? Well, it takes place in, you see it most clearly, Revelation 21, 22. Come from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible. Here we are in the New Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem, and you have God's redemptive rule over God's redeemed people. So check this out, Revelation 22, 21. Here's God's redemptive rule. Notice who's on the throne. Notice who's on the throne, Revelation 22, 1. I know, I know I'm just speeding through this. If, uh, if you need these references, I can send you the whole, the whole manuscript. Who's on the throne? The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Lamb? Why a Lamb? Because He's slaughtered for His people. 
He rules as the Lamb of God, slaughtered for His people, that they might be His people. They are God's redeemed people. Only those who have been purified by the Lamb can be there. Revelation 21-27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, the new Jerusalem nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's a redeemed people. They've been saved by Jesus and they're in God's place. Now, what is this new Jerusalem place? Well, for one thing, it's, it's exactly as wide as it is tall as it is. In, it's a cube, just like the Holy of Holies was. It's a temple. This is God's end times temple. And guess what? It sounds a lot like Eden. L- listen to what's here. The river of the water of life, brightest crystal flow. Uh, yeah, am I reading the right thing? Yep. Uh, water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the, tr- the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. You just you have a, the, the culminated Edenic temple place, and if you and and then this is kind of strange. Not only is the place a temple, but Jesus is the temple somehow. Revelation twenty one twenty two. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So so the place that God's people come in order to have access to Him, is now Jesus Christ. So here we have this this Edenic city, lamb, temple thing. I don't know how you make sense of all of that. I do know that if you have a temple, you have presence. You have the presence of God. And so listen to this, Revelation 21, 2 and 3. Listen to God and His people in the presence of one another I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. So here's, here's the temple. Here's the throne. You've got rule. You've got place. You've got God. You've got people. And are they enjoying one another? Here's what, here's what the voice says from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 22.3, another scene. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. You've got throne, you've got rule, you've got a Lamb on the throne, you've got a redemptive Savior, ruler on the throne over His people. And what are they doing? And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their heads. And mission is accomplished. Revelation and celebration. They see His face. They see the face of the Lamb of God in whom God chiefly is revealing Himself through Christ and His work on the cross. So here they are, looking at the Lamb who died on the cross, who is the chief revealer of God in glory, and they are worshiping. It's mission accomplished. This is the end for which God created the world. It's a kingdom. It's a kingdom drama. 
Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And it, takes con- it all takes place, all of this takes place in this kingdom story. And, and we've got to just ask the question now, where are we in the story? Jesus comes in. He announces the kingdom is at hand. So the Savior King has arrived. Jesus is the Savior King. He has arrived. The kingdom has arrived in some form. The announcement is going forth. And depending on how you have responded to that announcement, you're in one of two places. You're in one of two places right now. Everybody in this room is in one of two places. Either, and I guess I'll just focus on this one for a minute. One of those places could be, this is for those who have not responded to the announcement. These are people who are in total exile right now. Total exile from God. You're east of Eden. You've been driven out of the land. God is not your God as a Redeemer. You are not under His rule as a redeemed. You have no way, no place to come to meet Him. And you have no fellowship with Him. This is the state into which every human being is born. Because Adam was our representative. There's a new Adam. There's a second Adam who has come. And you don't have to stay in exile. You don't have to stay under wrath. You don't have to stay under curse. And you're being invited by the declaration of the presence of the kingdom. You are being invited to come out of that captivity. The announcement of the gospel is good news. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, Jesus came as king this time not to bring judgment. That's coming, but not yet. He didn't come to bring judgment yet. He came to bring rescue. He came to redeem. He has come to die for sinners and make a way for exiles to return to their God and enjoy Him. And if that's you, I invite you, I urge you, I appeal to you, I am pleading with you, get on the mission. God's doing something. You don't want to live and you don't want to die East of Eden, I promise you. Hey, the exile is over. Repent and believe in the Gospel. See the excellencies of God in Christ. Some of us are in total exile. Now, some people have responded differently to the announcement. And they have repented and believed and, and now the kingdom has dawned for them. In, they've entered the kingdom in some sense. We've come under the redemptive reign of Christ. We, we trust in Him. We, we obey King Jesus. We, we've been saved from exile to become one of His, his people. 
Our sins have been taken away. He's renewed our hearts. Something new is taking place. We're, we're drawing near to God now through a new kind of temple. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the mediator now of God's presence. And we're enjoying God's presence. Because of Jesus, we now have access to the Father and, and, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us. The, the kingdom has dawned for us. However, it's only the kingdom in its inaugurated form. The kingdom is here, but it's not here in its fullness. We're set free from exile, and yet we're awaiting the full revelation of the exile. Here's what Paul says in Romans 8.23, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I'm waiting the redemption of our bodies. Waiting the redemption of... It's my, this is not redeemed yet. It's been purchased. Here's where we are. Here's where, let's see if this will work. Let's see. Okay. Anybody recognize this? Time Magazine, 19 what? 47? 1945. August 14th, 1945. V-Day, or VJ Day, Victory Over Japan Day. President Truman announces the end of World War II, and this dude is just grabbing every chick on the street in Times Square and just kissing. Hey, war is over, man. It's over. Rejoice. And, and, and the troops are still gone, though. In fact, Japan, Japan doesn't officially surrender until September 2nd, like two or three weeks later. This is where we're at. It, the, the, decis, the decisive victory has been won. But there's still some work to do. There's still some work to do. The church is enjoying the reality of the kingdom. It's celebrating the end of the exile. But we're still waiting for something. We're still waiting for the consummation, for for all of this to play out. And there's a sense in which the exile still exists for us. We're still waiting the redemption of our bodies. For now, the kingdom doesn't have the same earthly dimension that it did in Eden or in Israel. Christ's kingdom is not of this world, he said in John 18.36. And for the time being, it's advancing invisibly. Not by the power of the sword. It's not how the kingdom of God advances. The Holy Roman Empire got that wrong. Constantine got that wrong. It advances by the power of the Spirit through the proclamation of a message. Just like that picture. The war is over! A new life happens. That's how the kingdom advances. It's not overtaking the institutions of society. It can't be installed through legislation. It can't be installed through social advancement. Those are all things that maybe sometimes, as we do good in society, indicate, oh, something seems to be... Those are all maybe fruits of the reality that something is changing in our lives. That new creation has started internally by the power of the Holy Spirit. But, but we don't install the kingdom by transforming society. We don't redeem culture. We're waiting for that. The kingdom is awaiting a final transformation. Revelation 11.15, here's when it happens. The seventh angel blows his trumpet. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, 
the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. He's coming back. He's going to redeem it all. He's going to reveal the reality of what's already happening in the realm of the Spirit. And when it happens, the mission is accomplished. And until then, there's work to do. Because there's a mission. God is on a mission to create glad-hearted worshipers of His beauty as He is revealed in the person and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ who establishes the kingdom of God. And to that end, I'm almost done here, to that end, King Jesus has given the church an assignment. And here it is. Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's so funny. In the Great Commission, we often neglect that part of it. This is the king calling his people now to a mission. To be part of some bigger mission. And here's what he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age as you are on that mission. Not I am with you always to the end of the age as you build up your retirement fund. That's not what he's talking about. And, that, and that, you're fine. If you've got retirement fund, you, that's fine. I'm not ripping on that. What I'm ripping on is, hey, we are caught up in the little stories like it's the big story. There, it's not the big story. My life, my little tiny, tiny story and yours is not the big story. That's the big story. Jesus is serious about making disciples. He's serious about the church. Jesus is serious about His church. Build the church. Build the church. Build the church. Are you on mission? Are you on the mission? Are we on the mission? That's what, Je- that's what Jesus is calling us to. Where are you? Total exile? Hey, don't be enamored with your small... Some people don't... Some people will not come out of exile because they are so enamored with their small stories. Little bitty stories. Don't... Don't do that. Join Christ. And if you are in the kingdom... Are you given to the mission? You know, it's, it's just too easy, right? It's too easy. We want to be a part of the mission, but we're just rendered useless because we're just caught up in our little tiny stories. And we miss the grand narrative. So, let's not take a summer vacation from the mission. You know what I mean? New Hope, let's not take a summer vacation from the mission. Let's invest in our relationship with God. Let's invest in the lives of one another. Let's invest in the spheres of influence that we have with unbelievers. Let's be serious about the mission. Let's get caught up into something big. You pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for 
the calling to be a part of the mission. I want to thank you, Jesus, that we don't go out and create the kingdom. I want to thank you that you have sent us as announcers of something that has been completed. I want to thank you that you have, in some great condescending mercy, included us in this plan. And and, and I want to thank you for the way that you free us from our smaller stories. And I want to ask that you would do that. Would Would you take some time now and respond to the Lord? Just... brings up some small story idol that you have. Just respond to the Lord. If you're in exile, in total exile, I invite you. Repent and believe. If there are people in your life you know that aren't on the mission, You know they're in exile. You know that they are east of Eden. They're under wrath. They're under judgment. Would you talk to God and ask Him for strength to pronounce the end of the exile that Jesus, the Savior King, has come? God, would you give us opportunities? Would you give us boldness? Would you give us good conversations? Help us with our lack of courage, our laziness that prevents us from being on the mission. We ask these things in Christ's name.